Hello, and welcome to our third episode of Roots Radio, a podcast about sharing experiences with those living with ALS. Our guests include those diagnosed with ALS, as well as caregivers, family members, doctors, researchers, in essence, what we hope to be a broad representation of the ALS community. If you've listened to our prior episodes, you've been introduced to our guests, Therese and Pat. Today, you will get to know our friend, Bill. As a reminder, if you'd like to be a part of our project, you can contact us at rootsradioals at gmail.com. I'm one of your hosts, Jesse Meyer. I'm a licensed social worker working in an ALS clinic in Pennsylvania's Lehigh Valley. Joining me is my co-host and my dear friend, Lenny Rafalco, who is a patient advocate and having been diagnosed with ALS in July of 2019. Thanks, Jesse. And hello, everyone, and welcome again to our podcast. As Jesse mentioned, in today's episode, we introduce our listeners to Bill, who writes and recites poetry. Bill is a 70-year-old Marine Corps vet. Bill has been living with PLS since 2016 and lives by himself with the support of his wonderful caregivers, Marilyn and June, who have been with Bill for the last several years. Because PLS affects his speech, Bill's dialogue with us will be primarily through June, but also we have a pre-recording of Bill's voice, and we also utilize his speech-generating machine. Today, Bill is going to share two of his poems with us, both of which are very personal and visual. The first poem, which is Gritty and Honest, describes his challenges with BLS. Bill recites the poem through his speech-generating machine. For the second poem, which recounts a family memory from a photograph of his father and sister, we will hear Bill recite the poem in his own voice as it was recorded before PLS affected his speech. And now let's share our interview with Bill. Thank you so much for joining us today on Roots Radio. We are so privileged to have you here along with your um companion and friend, June. And June, um, we are just so grateful that you are here as well. So thank you for joining us. Um, yeah. And so for our listeners, um, June is going to read the responses that Bill has already crafted for us. So the voice you'll hear is June's. Um, but Lenny and I are, are right now are looking right at June and, and Bill together on the video. So um, we are excited about this. And we're, we're so grateful that people are going to be able to hear your words and hear your story. So, um, yeah. So Bill, our poet, the poet of our clinic, <laughs> uh, before we get started on your first poem that we're going to play for everybody, um, we wanted we were curious, could you share with us a little bit about how you got started writing poetry? Okay. Um, I did not start with poetry. My first piece of writing was a short story about my father and growing up. I had no intention of writing it. It just came out and it took me a week to write it and I cried the entire time. Afterward, I felt like a giant weight was lifted off my shoulder. Mm. So it sounds like, Bill, that it, it, it sort of came as a natural, you weren't sort of aware that this was a 
gift that you had, but it just became sort of this cathartic experience that you realized as it was happening. Yeah. 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 Does anybody else in your family write poetry or other types of, was anybody else a writer? My family never wrote anything. As a matter of fact, they did not like what I wrote about the family. They wanted to keep the skeletons in the closet. I was the only one who went to college. And while there, I got involved with theater, musical, no musical, but serious drama by playwrights like Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, Sam Shepard, Dave Mamet, etc. As a result, I believe that we all have a story to tell and it is important to tell our stories. By doing so, we know that we are not alone with our experiences. I think that is important. Yes, Lenny, don't you think that that, I feel like Bill, in that sentence, and Jean, you read it so beautifully, that is exactly sort of the heart of what we're, this show, you know, Roots Radio was really to highlight people's stories and that they, then when you say it, you feel less alone. Right. And that's sort of this connection with somebody that you might not ever know. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think the way that everything has transitioned, um, you know, we, I think we mentioned in our first podcast that our original thought was to transcribe this and have this as an oral testament, if you will. Um, but after our first podcast, you know, we realized that we can never do it justice by by putting somebody's words and putting it down on paper that, you know, we felt that given the talent we had, the best way to do that and allow people to share stories about them themselves was the idea of doing this podcast. So, yeah, I think that I, I think you're exactly right there, that there is this really nice um, connection here between what we've been trying to do and actually what uh, Bill's been trying to do with um, with his poems and his stories. And, and I, and, and I, and I think that's, that's been very natural, a very natural connection here. It's also interesting. I think, you know, looking at the playwrights that you mentioned, Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, Sam Shepard, et cetera, that, you know, when I think of them, particularly Arthur Miller, uh, you know, obviously death of a salesman and Tennessee Williams, that, that, that these are very, in my mind, very complex playwrights that necessarily um, are not of a of a uplifting nature, but much more conflict, much more complex in the way that they um, really describe the human psyche and the connections and relationships that people have with each other. So I see that you mentioned these playwrights as as. Um, as talents that uh, um, are not not glib, but in fact are are th there's a very deep message um, in each of them and a deep message to tell. I love that. I think that is that is spot on. Um, and I, I'm I'm curious, Bill, and you can just nod if I I I wonder when you were reading those in college, when you're taking those classes, taking those courses, if you felt a sense of, if you felt less alone, 
as you were reading them, you know, and like, I give the example sometimes of, um, Kurt Vonnegut, that author, I loved his stuff. And I remember the first time, and I guess I was in high school or college reading Kurt Vonnegut. And he's this very sort of a black satire, like dark humor kind of, um, and thinking for the first time reading this book, like, wow, there's other people that think like this in the world. Like I'm not the only one that thinks these things (laughs) and, you know, and I felt such relief in that. And I think that that is sometimes what art can do and certainly what your writings have done and will continue to do throughout time is, um, someone you might not ever know reading that thinking you reading your words, hearing your voice, your recordings and feeling less alone. And that is, that is such a gift. Um, okay. So what in spill, what do you, would you say that inspires your poetry? I would say that most of my poetry is inspired by a need to tell the story. I think that our stories are hanging above our head by a string and all we have to do is spend some time working on it and reach up and pull them down. I am a lazy writer, but sometimes I have no choice. I have to write it. If I have a strong feeling about something, I try to convey that feeling with words. How are you a lazy writer? (laughs) I don't believe it. (laughs) Yeah, I don't either. I don't, I don't. I'm calling BS on that one, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think you're a lazy writer. I think it takes a lot of effort to to compose what you see and what you think, and and put that down on paper, um, and have it flow like you do. Particularly with the two examples that we're going to have, the two poems that we're going to be, um, you know, reciting here or sharing with everybody. I also love Bill. I love that visual you gave of it hanging like right above your head and just waiting. Cause I feel like the, you know, we all have ideas, we all have thoughts, but it's the action and the bravery and the vulnerability to take that and create that. That is something so unique that I think the artists of the world, the poets of the world, um, you know, they, they take, they, they take that leap and they go there. They let themselves go there. Um, I think that is really, so I love that visual of it sort of just hanging right there and needing that sort of um, to pull it down, right? Pull it down and bring it in. So um, do you remember, Bill, your first poem or when you first even realized that this was, I know you shared with us earlier, that it just sort of came out um, when you were younger. Um, but do you remember sort of when you first had that realization that hmm, this is something I think I might be into? I think many writers need to write about their experience growing up before anything else. Anyone who survived childhood has plenty to write about. We need to get that stuff out first. I don't consider myself a good poet. However, I do concentrate on telling the truth and seeing the universal value of that. I also believe that the more you read poetry, the more inspired you become. Also, there are some stories that must be told. 
Mm. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. And, that, it, and I find it interesting, especially when we transition here to the next, to, to the first poem that we're going to share with everybody is that, you know, you're concentrating on telling the truth. And sometimes that truth is, is difficult. Um, other times it just flows because it's, it's happy and it's bountiful and it's bubbly. Um, but, you know, I see that in your, your writings that that seems to be a very, very important piece of them all is, is the truth and something that um, you wanted to share with people. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't feel like you're, you're necessarily holding back, but that, you know, uh, the truth is, as you say, it's just extremely important to you. And I think that really comes through in your writings. Yeah. Yeah. And the, that the universal value that, that is it, right. That's what connects us all is these truths that, we can't always put our fingers on or, or put words to. I think that is the gift that somebody like you and the artists of the world have is that they can put words and make tangible something that a feeling, an emotion, an experience that, you know, the universe, the, the, you know, we can't always make sense of or, or fabricate. And I think you do a, such a beautiful job at, at that. Um, so yeah, so I think we're going to go ahead. Lenny's going to introduce your first poem. Right. Okay. Yeah. Why don't we go ahead and transition now? We've been talking about your poems and let's go ahead and share them with our listeners. Um, the first poem, um, is entitled coming and going. And, you know, as we mentioned from the outset, at least in my opinion, this poem, you know, I find it to be fairly gritty and graphic, describing in what Bill sees and experiences each day with PLS. Um, but going back to the truth, I think it is, it does reflect the um, the experiences and the truth that you that you face with each day. So I think that that's going to resonate here with, you know, once we, we share the poem. So why don't we go ahead, Jesse, if you could cue the, the poem up. Um, and this is Bill reciting the poem through his speech generating machine. And uh, Jesse, if you want to, why don't you go ahead and um, let's share coming and going with our listeners. Shall end. 
that I am flanked by guardrails, grab bars, and two trapeze hanging from chains just overhead. I use all of them to help me turn over in the night. I also use them to get to the edge of the bed to pee into the plastic urine bottles. My legs have become paralyzed. As each day passes, the urine bottles get heavier and heavier as my hands become weaker and weaker. And I feel like I'm being held together with rubber bands and wooden clothespins. In the morning, my aide pulls me out of bed and transfers me into my power wheelchair. Like a child, she washes my face. Her soft hands are a great comfort. Eighty years ago, the great Lou Gehrig passed away from this cruel disease, and still there is no cure or treatment. No warp speed. No hurry at all. There is so much that I'm not telling you. I am no longer able to speak. Hope is the biggest thing that is missing. Fear not, I tell myself. For we are going, and we are coming, into and out of this world, over and over, again. <laughs> so, wow. That um, that to me is pretty powerful stuff. Um, I agree. You know, I'm 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 living with ALS, and we all are at different stages. And uh, uh, you know, to me, it really it really hits home. And it's it's you know it's very it's very melancholy. Um, and Bill, why why did you write coming and going? I mean, does it does it provide you with some form of, of catharsis? Because it is very graphic, and I couldn't, you know, I was trying to think of a word to describe it. You know, gritty just really came to mind over and over again for me. So why 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 did you why did you write it? I wrote coming and going because I wanted to share my experience with this horrible disease. So many people suffer terribly and die in silence. I also believe that this country chooses to avoid such a reality. We spend billions of taxpayer dollars on nuclear weapons, other countries going to other countries, going to Mars, et cetera, et cetera. What about us? I feel abandoned. When was the last time you saw a walk or a bake sale or how to ask a family or, and friends to raise money for another jet fighter, which costs anywhere from 64 million for the F-16 to 135 million for the F-35? For each plane, that would pay for a lot of research into these horrible diseases. And you're very true. I mean, that that's that that really is true. And I think that we've all experienced through this pandemic what can be done when the appropriate level of attention and resources are mobilized. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, um, warp speed. You know, developing a vaccine in less than a year, developing several vaccines, and um, it it does it is frustrating. I know Jesse and I have talked about that, and um, and it is frustrating not just for ALS 
but for so many of the diseases in the world that just don't have that, that you don't get that attention from, from Hollywood or from, uh, from other, you know, people that may be celebrated more than, than us that, that get that attention is very, it is very frustrating. Um, I also think Bill, I think, um, gosh, that poem is so beautiful. (laughs) It is so beautiful. Um, and hard, beautiful and hard at the same time. Um, and I, I, um, a gift that I feel like you have is your ability to describe sort of the day to day, these little nuances of your day that, you know, when you talk about the urine bottles and you talk about, um, your aid, you know, holding you like a child. I mean, the way that you describe these things and actions that ALS, PLS have, you know, you know, nobody usually thinks about how hard it can be to go to the bathroom, right? Right. You don't have to think about it until it's, until it is, your body's not doing it. And it becomes this, um, something bigger. And I I just am so in awe of your ability to describe and explain and, and put words and feeling and emotion to, you know, the day to day of what living with this disease is like. Um, it's a, it is a gift. That is a gift. And that's what I think is kind of articulated and can be distributed to a wide audience because, you know, if you're just distributing that to the ALS community, we know that we experience that you're not telling us anything that, um, we may not, we may have experienced or we're not going to experience or whatever the case may be. But the hard part is sharing it and getting people who are not part of the ALS community, but just for them to realize, at least at this point in their life, that there can be a difference. They can make a difference and that there are people that are living with these kind of challenges. Once again, I don't, you know, our discussion here is on ALS, but it, there's many challenges out there, you know, besides ALS. And, and I think that, and, and I was guilty. I know um, before I was diagnosed with ALS, before I became sick, um, I knew of the disease, particularly because I'm a very, uh, and I knew of it very young on as I was young because I'm a big baseball fan. So I knew of Lou Gehrig and I only knew of Lou Gehrig's disease. I didn't really connect. I didn't really think of it as ALS, but that's how I knew it. And, um, um, you know, I think being able to, and, and, and I guess where I was going with that was that's all I knew of it. I didn't really participate in a whole lot of ALS walks or whatever the case may be. So I always feel kind of embarrassed by now putting a lot of energy and trying to help with people understand ALS because I'm doing it now after I've been affected with it. But something like your poem and your stories are important because I think it helps share to people not afflicted by ALS what the ALS community is dealing with and hopefully getting the interest in 
the 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 cures and the research before they themselves are affected by it. And that's what I think is 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 really important and why it, your 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 poem is hard, but it also describes what is what is a hard life that that we're left with with ALS. So, uh, you know, I I you know I congratulate you on being able to articulate that and provide a very graphic, very hard, very gritty um, visual for people um, in the ALS community, but most importantly, something that can be shared with those outside of it so that they can, you know, there's a, there, to hopefully move them to provide resources to help find better treatments, better, you know, a cure for the disease itself. So for me, that that's what I think is very important with it. Absolutely. And also too, you know, I want to share this with our listeners that Bill, I, you are an incredibly imp- uh, passionate and inspiring person when it comes to advocating and researching. And, um, you know, you for a long time, uh, would you would be telling us sort of about what, what was happening you know, nationally or internationally, what trials were going on, you know, like you were, you are, were, are so up on that. And I remember us having a conversation once about when we were talking about um, clinical trials and right to try and sort of the limitations that, you know, on top of the physical limitations of ALS and PLS, some of the things that have made you know, that we need to demand and use our voices and our writings and our words to sort of demand better for our, for our community. Um, I remember one of the conversations you had shared with me that we had had about is how some of the clinical trials, I believe, I don't, yeah, I believe it's most of them, you know, an exclusion criteria is PLS. And so you have to technically have ALS diagnosis for some of the clinical trials and how frustrating and that, that, you know, you were on all the time, you know, and to see just because you were diagnosed with PLS and it wasn't ALS, why can't you try it? You know, like I, those are some of the frustrations that, um, you know, you shared and we you've definitely been inspired by your passion. And I do think that's one of those things that, you know, we need to demand more. We need, we need more. You should be able to try that. Everybody should be able to try. Um, So that, yeah, I think that that is, like you said, Lenny, I think this ability to get this, you know, for people to hear you read your words, feel the feelings as hard as they are. It's honest and it's real. Yeah. Very much so. Very much so. So Bill, just moving along here, could you um, share with us your thoughts, any thoughts you may have, which if given the opportunity that you would share with somebody who's newly diagnosed with ALS, you know, knowing what you know now, and also maybe remembering the first time you were um, uh, 
when you were um, diagnosed with it, that it can be overwhelming. So what, what thoughts would you have possibly that you could, that you would share with somebody newly diagnosed? I would say start out by finding an ALS clinic and a group and join them. Also be proactive, anticipate what you may need and stay ahead of what's coming next. Keep in mind that someday treatment or cure will be coming. We need to pressure the FDA into letting us try possible treatments without waiting, waiting for three clinical trials, which takes 10 years. We must demand that the pharmaceutical companies release these possible treatments. They don't seem to care that we are suffering and dying every day. They only care about money. I certainly think that the financial end of it is certainly a big motivator and is a concern. Um, but I also think that it's, it's just, you know, we've, our, we've just created such a huge bureaucracy and we're such a litigious society that it, it makes it difficult. It, it makes companies more and more cautious. But going back to what I said earlier, I think we've seen what they can do. They being the pharmaceuticals, they being the government, they being researchers and, and, and you know, folks in clinics, uh, you know, with, um, with the pandemic and with the vaccines that have come out, we've seen clearly what can be done um, in a very short period of time. And, and I would wholeheartedly agree with you that 10 years is way too long uh, for some of these treatments to be available um, possibly for people, you know, for people to use. And um, it's just uh, we've, we've seen it now. So the, the precedent has been set more and more that we could use that precedent to hopefully get um, some more expediency associated with uh, the release of treatments, regardless of the stage, or at least at, at a much earlier stage than they are now for ALS. And as I, I keep saying, not just ALS, but for all those diseases out there that uh, really aren't getting the attention that they deserve. So that was that that was good, and yeah. you know, Bill, really, thank you for sharing that um, coming and going. Um, but let's pivot to something a little little different here. Um, your second poem, um, which uh, provides a different side, a, a, a reality you had many many years ago, and you want to uh, share with people. So let's go ahead and uh, transition over to the second poem, Jesse, if you want to. Go ahead and take it from here. Yeah. Thank you, Lenny. So yeah, this poem we have by Bill is called Daddy and Elizabeth. And Bill actually recorded this, you know, wrote this poem and then recorded it. I believe it was in 2018. Yeah. Yeah. Before. Before that. Okay. So, um, Bill recorded this on his computer using his own device, you know, years ago. So the voice that you'll hear on this recording is Bill's voice. And it is such a gift. It is, this is, it is so awesome to be able to hear you. Um, and, and we will share, we'll talk about the poem and sort of the significance of it after. Okay. So this is entitled daddy and Elizabeth. 
And it's about family life. It's called Daddy and Elizabeth. I have an old picture of my father and my youngest sister, Elizabeth. It was taken in our little backyard. He's in his work clothes and there's quarry dirt still on his face. He looks exhausted. Elizabeth is so young and beaming with pride, both arms wrapped around her father that she adores as only a little girl could. She is so full of life and wonder, so pretty. It's summertime, and I imagine he'll ask mom for a couple bucks for the club. Come on, Wanda, just a beer or two, and then I'll come right home. <laughs> mom won't say much in front of the kids, especially little Elizabeth. She'll give the money to him, and then he'll start walking uptown. She'll keep his cold supper on the stove, and when he comes home drunk and late, he'll lift the lids on the pots and eat with his fingers, wiping the grease from his dirty work pants. Not quietly, though, for we'll listen in our beds as he relives Pearl Harbor and his war days with Admiral Halsey and the Japanese. And, of course, being smitten himself, he'll proclaim for the whole dark house to hear that his little Elizabeth was named after the Queen of England. <laughs> <laughs> love it. I love it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow, that was that was amazing. You have your voice. I swear it's like it could be um in movies. It you that's just you have it. <laughs> it's just moving. It gives me chills. Um, I loved being able to hear that. I would imagine if it's mixed emotions maybe for you hearing what your voice used to sound like. And what I liked about it, I know that our listeners can't, couldn't see this, but as I said, we've, you know, we're all on zoom here was that as the, as Bill started his poem, I, I can see you just looking off into the distance as if you're actually remembering vividly the the, the moment in time that you're describing in the poem and, and, and the memories and the thoughts just came flashing back, probably so real and so vivid as you kind of looked off into the distance and, and several times a big smile came across your face. So that was, that was really heartwarming to see that really, really, really neat stuff. Really terrific. Yeah, that was, that was awesome. So what, um, so you wrote this poem, obviously, before you got sick, and it was about your father, right? And your youngest sister, Elizabeth. What inspired you to write this? Tell us a little bit about it. I was inspired to write Daddy and Elizabeth when I found that old black and white photo. It's a true story. My father worked in a slate quarry for very little pay. He also drank. And as a result of being at Pearl Harbor and fighting in the Pacific, was haunted by the war. When I was small in the 1950s, my mom worked in the telephone exchange in our little town as an operator. Neither of my parents ever drove, so we never had a car. When the building burned down, she lost her job. 
After that, she stayed home to raise her five children, which was fortunate for us. We all came out okay. My father was either at work or at the bar. However, he was still a good man and we loved him nonetheless. Wow, I that it is beautiful, Bill. It's beautiful. And I can sort of see in my, you know, Lenny and I were sharing after hearing it the first time, like you can just, we've never seen that photograph, but just hearing your poem and the way you describe those, um, gosh, it's beautiful. It's just the way you describe even, you know, your dad coming home and, um, your mom commenting, I don't know, it's all, it's just, it's beautiful. And yeah, it does bring back this sort of visual for somebody who's never seen it, what that picture, I have a picture in my head of what I think that picture looks like, that black and white photo. Me as well. I do too. And I've never seen the picture. So yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I think we're all there. And what I really liked about it was, you know, once again, the honesty that you share about your father and obviously, you know, as you conclude, you say he was a good man and you loved him, but you also, I guess what was so important, it was just as important about him and about your family for you, not to just to say that we loved him and a good man, but also to recognize um, some of the, the imperfect parts of him, if you will. You know, I mean, he was at work, supply, you know, working for the family, but you're also honest enough and not afraid and saying, yes, but he was also at the bar nonetheless you loved him and that he was a good man that it, it really you know you know i could see some of that tennessee williams influence that there's these the these stories going on here that uh you know there's this um you know uh, there's there's something you know the white elephant in the room that that you wanted to share with people but the depth of it is it goes beyond what you're you're just seeing at the surface but what's driving something underneath. So I, 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 I really appreciated that, um, you know, that part of the poem as well as your response here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, this perspective that you bring is so, is so healing bill like to and how you said earlier you know if you survive childhood you have stories to tell <laughs> right <laughs> and i think that any one of us can can connect with that feeling and i am always in awe of people's ability and you you i mean the poem is that is your ability like lenny said to acknowledge your your experience, your family's experience, how that impacted you, but also wrap, like Hilani said, it's wrapped up in also your dad's experience as a veteran, right? And and sort of what he saw, what he lived through, how that can sort of, you know, all I'm sorry about that. Um how that all impacts, you know, who we are and 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 but to not have resentment, to not have hold on to anger and um I, I'm just that is so refreshing and so um you know that perspective is is healing in a lot of ways so thank you for sharing that it's inspiring 
<laughs> and I think a lot of families probably, you know, children of addicts have been a pet can connect with that, you know, things that they've seen, things that they've lived through and, um, to be able to look back on it with, with compassion, but also honesty. It's amazing. Um, yeah. So I'm just, yeah, I'm so grateful for this, for this time. And I think being able to hear your voice bell is, is, uh, it is always there. It is always there. And you still have stories to tell and you still have things to say. Um, and on that note, so Bill, you know, before we close, um, he wanted to acknowledge, yeah, this is something that Lenny has, has said before as part of a purpose of our podcast is being able to give people the platform to honor the people in their life that have helped them on this journey. And, you know, our, we love our, our ALS community, but my goodness, the caregivers in that community are just amazing as well. And um, so you wanted to honor um, and, and share a little bit about three people in your life, in your circle, Bill, that have been monumental in caring for you. And you wanted to, you know, let them know how much you appreciate them. Um, so we have, June, are you able to kind of share with us a little bit about that? Yep, I have it all right here. Okay. <laughs> um, I met Tom in college and we've been good friends ever since. Over the years, whenever he needed help working on his house or whatever, I would always help him and he did the same for me. When I got sick in 2014, he took me to many doctor, doctors to try to get a diagnosis. We went to New Jersey, Philadelphia, and New York City. After a year and a half, I finally got a diagnosis of PLS. However, I believe that I now have ALS, which is not uncommon. Only a brain MRI can tell. Dr. Mackin did not think it was worth doing one. And that was fine by me. Tom continues to help me and I am eternally grateful. When I first met Marilyn, I knew she was a strong believer in God. I knew she was decent, honest, and trustworthy. She is all that and more. After a year or two, I gave her a necklace with a cross, which was my mother's, that I bought for her. After my mother passed away, my sisters gave me the cross back. Now that now that Marilyn has it and wears it, I think of my mother every time I see it on Marilyn. <clears throat> Some time ago, Marilyn told me that she will take care of me until the end, which she hopes is a long time from now. I cannot imagine going through this without her. The day I met June, Marilyn was here, and Marilyn said to June that if she was going to help me, please take good care of, care of Bill because I love him so much. I saw tears in June's eyes and I knew I wanted to hire her. Now I'm going to cry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that was nearly two years ago. June has worked out just as well as Marilyn. She's dependable, hardworking, trustworthy, and very compassionate. I am so fortunate and blessed to have Tom, Marilyn, and June helping me. I would have a hard time without any one of them. I will love all three of them forever and ever. As far as this disease goes, 
I have received so much wonderful help from Lehigh Valley Hospital, ALS Association, the Veterans Affairs, Jessica Meyer, and Wendy Barnes. They have all been terrific and I am so grateful. I really don't mind dying, but I do not want to live paralyzed where all that I'll be able to do is blink my eyes. I seem to be headed in that direction. I won't live like that. Therefore, at some point in time, I will have to stop eating and drinking. My biggest concern is hurting the people that I love. My siblings should be okay. Tom is an old dog like me and he'll be fine. Most of all, I worry about June and Marilyn. I know they are going to have a hard time. I will be so sorry about that. Lastly, on my end of it, as the great American gospel song goes, when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Now I'm going to go cry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, June. That well, was uh, <laughs> that was pretty tough. I read Bill, it Thank you. It's, it's still tough every time I read it. <clears throat> yeah. June, for you, I mean, what was that like? What was that like to hear? I know it's hard to read about ourselves, but but what was that like to hear sort of Bill's reflections? Well, I mean, he's very grateful for all of us. I know that. Um, it, it is hard to, to read about yourself. And, and I couldn't remember that. I, I couldn't believe that he remembered that day when I first met. And I, I had tears in my eyes because she said that to me. And, uh, all of all the people who help him and all of his friends, I consider myself his friend, not just his aide. Um, we love him. We love him a lot. And he knows it. <laughs> That's <knows> <laughs> That is so important because I know from my perspective, and I think this is what Bill is saying at the end there in his response, is that, you know, I'm not necessarily sad for myself. I'm, I'm scared because of the unknown, but I'm sad for the people that around me that I know care about me. And, you know, my girlfriend, Marta, that is just a tremendous, you know, caregiver and my daughter and stuff that I want to be here forever, not necessarily to experience life, but to be here for them and to be their unconditional backstop. And that's what's, that's what makes me sad. And I think that's, I, I read that between, you know, I read that into what you're saying here, um, you know, Bill, that, uh, you know, you definitely don't want to live in that type of condition but what's not make, what makes you sad is not necessarily the condition, but what, what makes you sad is not being there again for people that have been so important to you, but also people that you have been so important to them as well. And, and that's what, that's what for me that I keep struggling with. And, um, you know, I'm hoping that I can reflect upon some of the things that you've said here um, over the last half hour so that you know, may help, uh, may help me and, and others that may read it, uh, to, to, to make some sense out of it and to come to some acceptance, if you will. But that's the hardest part is that I know you'll no longer be there for June in Maryland. And, you know, the same with myself and, and those of us afflicted with the disease. So I, I do appreciate you very much bringing that up in your responses here is very important for, for me personally to hear. 
<clears throat> we are just so grateful for you, my friend, and June, our new friend. <laughs> this has just been um, so beautiful, and we are so grateful. I just I keep saying that, but it's the only word that keeps coming to my mind. Of how grateful I feel that that you recorded your recordings that you wrote down what, what that, I, those ideas that were hanging, you know, above your head, like you described, um, you know, I don't think you can listen and hear and read your work and not be changed. I really don't. I feel that. And, um, it's certainly, certainly changed me. And, um, you know, this was a privilege. We are just so grateful. So thank you for doing this for us. And June, thank you for, for being, um, being Bill's, being Bill's voice. Yeah. I would do anything for Bill. He's a wonderful person. And I love him to death. That's great. Smile, the smile. It's, oh, yeah, yes. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yes. Bill I, has so, a beautiful smile. I want to see, okay, this is what I want to see. I know you were talking about the picture of your sister, but I would love to see a picture of you as a kid, Bill, because I just have this feeling that you probably had that same yeah, smile. That's okay, hold on. He's sending me for one. Where am I going? Oh. <laughs> the bedroom? No? Behind you? Oh, 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 here. Behind you, right here. Okay. So this is you here, right? Okay. So can you see this? Yes. Okay. You're here. Oh my gosh. Now, which one is Elizabeth in this picture too? Uh, the baby. The baby. Um, over here. On the corner. Okay. And so oh. Billy. Wow. Wow. Yep. Same smile. Yeah. <laughs> he's not smiling too much, but he's, when you get him to smile, boy, you can't stop him. Yep. So good. to the people listening, what we were just looking at is a picture that, that Bill has framed yeah. on his counter of his, wow. oh. his siblings. Um, and that was that your mom in that picture too. Yeah. This, this one. Yeah. He wants you to see another picture. This okay. was him and his mom. Oh, there's oh. the smile. Yeah. There it is. Yep. Handsome guy, right? Handsome guy. Handsome guy. Aww. Yeah, with the sleeveless shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Showing <laughs> off your muscles there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy, oh, boy. That's Aww. great. And your mom looks like a beautiful woman. Yeah. Wanda. <laughs> Wanda. Wanda. <laughs> well, thank you guys. This is this is incredible. We're so grateful. And we will be in touch soon, okay? Thank you. And it was great to meet you. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you, June. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Bill it was a pleasure and June it was a pleasure. And hopefully one of these days we'll get to meet Marilyn as well, the other uh part of the the three-legged stool, if you will, the, that holds you up. <laughs> and the old dog, Tom. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. Dog. I forgot Tom. Yeah, oh. definitely. <laughs> the other do old dog, Tom. That would be great. Yeah. <laughs> he's, so, he's a good guy. All right. 
Thank you, Bill. Thank you, June. Thank you. Bye bye. So, in reflecting back on our discussion with Bill, it's pretty exciting to consider that even with Bill's challenges right now in actually speaking, and that is having extemporaneous discussions and participating in conversations. You know, thinking back on it, Jesse, I thought it was pretty cool that we actually had several alternative communication um, resources, if you will, or methods, I guess is a better phrase, is a better word, methods to communicate with them, which, which worked great. Um, a little bit of effort on our part, I think went, went a long ways in, in, in really being able to, to have a, a real meaningful dialogue, if you will, with, with Bill and, and, and through June. In particular, you know, we communicated with Bill as part of our prep session for the podcast. We communicated with him through email, through a Zoom meeting, which we did during the actual podcast. So we were actually able to share facial expressions, his expressions, our expressions, which I think is so important um, as human beings in their ability to communicate with each other. Um, we also took advantage of uh, technological research um, or technology rather with the speech generating machine that, uh, that Bill uses. And that was used so, so beautifully allowing him to essentially recite his poem coming and go, uh, coming and going. And then um, the other way that we communicated with him, which was really good because I thought it really brought the family context in into it and the caregiver context was June communicating for him or Bill communicating to us through June. And I know that as we saw on, on the Zoom that June and Bill have um, a lot of unspoken cues, communication cues between them. And it was really cool to see that. So as a follow-up to that, we thought it would be, um, it would be helpful to, to explore these alternative communications uh, methods. And to that end, um, Jesse is going to introduce a guest who is an expert in these resources. And um, she'll tell us a little bit about them and how families or groups, if they need them, how they can get them and how helpful they are. So with that, Jesse, how about if you go ahead and introduce our group or our guest? Yeah, thanks, Lenny. Um, so we have with us today, Amanda. Um, Amanda is, well, she's my friend, <laughs> first and foremost. Um, but I have the privilege of knowing Amanda through um, our clinic, our ALS clinic here. And so um, Amanda is our speech therapist. Um, she is sort of a jack of all trades. She does so many things. Um, and so we brought Lenny, just like you said, we thought it'd be awesome to have her here and share with us a little bit about her, her journey, what she has seen um, with working with families with ALS and um, share with us some, some of her some of her knowledge and her wisdom and just her Amanda-ness, which we're grateful to have. Um, so Amanda, if you don't mind starting, could you tell us a little bit about, just a little bit about you and, you know, what speech 
pathology is, how you got into that, you know, where, just tell us a little bit about you and, and your, and your journey. Sure. Yeah. I'm happy to be here. Um, so I got started with speech. Um, I graduated 10 years ago now, I think 10 years ago. Um, not really thinking that I was going to be involved initially with adults at all. Um, so speech kind of spans the horizon from birth all the way through adults. Um, so I went into it thinking I was going to be working with kids in a school. Mm -hmm. Um, and then through internships, through working, I was able to work in an acute care hospital setting, which then led me to the ALS clinic. So I've been a part of clinic for about eight years now. Um, so at clinic, um, as well within speech in this kind of niche of it, uh, it covers the speech, truly the speech piece of communicating, um, as well as the swallowing, eating, drinking, all of that. Um, but what I focus on in clinic a little bit more too, is kind of how you're talking about and what he's doing to communicate. Um, so within that, so within clinics, within follow-ups, I'm able to work with patients on a variety of options that they can use to communicate verbally, non-verbally, whatever it is that they might need. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So, so you said you initially, cause we're always curious sort of about people's paths mm -hmm. and people's stories. And so you initially thought you wanted to work with peeves. Yes. So kids. Yep. And then you had a few internships. Mm -hmm. It sounds like that sort of, you know, what was it that, did you have an experience or did you have a certain class or a certain, like, like what sort of shifted that for you? So I think, so I had a few classes um, on the adult kind of population and the, the augmentative communication world um, in college, which I loved, but again, was kind of full force that I was going to be with children and working in the school um, until I actually got to my placement. So an internship for about four months um, and actually in that internship, my mentor was the speech therapist for the ALS clinic at the time. Um, so then throughout those months, I was able to be with her both in the hospital setting, but also in clinic every week. Um, and then probably within a couple of weeks of being here, I was set that I was not going to be with till I wanted to be here. Um, so yeah, I think it was just actually seeing it in person. Um, I had this idea and that was not right. That wasn't what I wanted <laughs> with it pretty quickly. Um, so I'm very beyond happy that that's kind of what I chose and I'm grateful to be able to be a part of clinic and work. Um, it, I think looking back, I don't think I realized at the time, but looking back, it probably was the ALS clinic that kind of made me shift a little bit more just kind of knowing the patients and the families and, and here we are. And here we Eight are. Years later. Yeah. Eight years <laughs> later. Yeah. Well, I know uh, the clinic is really, really fortunate to have you with them. And I, you know, in some of our discussions we had before the podcast, uh, we talked a little bit about Bill and that you had helped him, you know, through his, um, his growth um, leading from the, you know, from the point when speech was becoming difficult to where he is now, where he seemed, um, at least during our interview, to be, to be comfortable with that, 
with the machine and 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 the various means of communication that we had. Um, how for for somebody in in you know that's going through that speech struggle, how 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 important is it that 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 difficulty or potential is is diagnosed or is is addressed early on how how important is it to be proactive with that um because i imagine there's there's learning there's a learning curve associated with the speech generating machine there's a learning curve associated with the other um, methods of communication so how important is that to our you know to folks within the als community to try to to identify that that need proactively rather than okay i can't i have trouble right now so what can we do yeah definitely really important um so, and that's kind of where I always, I, I feel bad sometimes at clinic because I'm, I'm giving options and kind of making people aware of what could happen. Not that it will, but if it could happen. So sometimes it's hard to, if, you know, we're not seeing any difficulties right now, but down the road, um, again, cause I, I don't want someone to get into that situation where it, they are having trouble and we, we don't have kind of a backup plan at the moment of kind of what to do. So yeah, really, really important from um, early on just to kind of talk about it and just symptoms to look for, to kind of monitor for if speech is changing. Um, And then, you know, from there, depending on what the patient, you know, who, what they're important to them. So if it is, you know, communicating verbally, whether it's using a device or anything, um, kind of identifying that and as it progresses and, you know, what works. So, but yeah, very important from, from the get-go. Yeah. I, I, I figured that would be the answer and that's so important, I guess, with all the, um, the symptoms associated with ALS right. is trying to get ahead of them and trying to be proactive. Mm-hmm. And that's good to know also with the speech therapy that there is opportunities there if it can be identified early on to be proactive and, and possibly make it, just that much easier for the for the patient as well as for the the caregivers and the family to um, to have that that contingency in in place. Definitely. And there, I I I feel like one of the beauties of of, of a clinic is that we learn so much from each other, mm-hmm. along with the person with ALS and their family. Like it's just mm-hmm. sort of this symbiotic. Is that the word? Sim. synergistic synergistic thank you (laughs) it's just this like we're all sort of learning Mm -hmm. from each other about what resources are out there what is a good fit for the person with ALS and Mm -hmm. the family and then kind of working together and what what I guess what I'm thinking about with that is that there's in terms of the proactive nature of things you know, I sort of think about it and this is what I've learned from you too, is like, there's two different tracks to kind of keep in mind. And one is that, um, meeting the person where they are. I've heard you talk so much about different levels of technology, how speech can, you know, when you guys go in and talk to families, you're talking about very, you know, low tech pen and paper or just symbols and, and, um, signs Mm -hmm. to use up all the way to there's certain devices that I've seen her and you can talk about this that 
if somebody doesn't have certain movement of certain limbs or even their eyes, there's ways that you can connect these certain sort of devices to your different parts of your body and use those muscles to connect to a machine. I'm not a techie person. So that's why this sounds really crazy (laughs) when I'm talking about it. To connect to a a machine Mm -hmm. to then speak for you. So Mm -hmm. it, you know, there's the lowest to the highest, but then I feel Mm -hmm. like your vision too, and what you bring to us is, you know, all the in-between and you know, all of that Mm -hmm. sort of what could be a good fit. So that is such a track that you bring to us, but then there is also this sort of logistical piece Mm -hmm. of insurance, you know, making sure that these devices get covered and you work your butt off to do that, you know, for families. And then also like the the delivery piece and the Mm -hmm. lag time that from the time you start your process, it could be three to four months Mm -hmm. until the, you know, somebody has that. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, could you share with us maybe a little about, um, a little bit about that? I mean, what you see as sort of goals for somebody and how you work to kind of meet that with, you know, meet their goals. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I think, um, you know, kind of going back to like the introduction of communication, whatever it may be that someone wants. Um, I think even starting off, you know, it's, it's a kind of a, a gentle nudging sometimes of starting with the not as techie options. So whether that be the pen and paper, the boards, the communication boards that someone can point to. Um, and then slowly as people get comfortable with that, then also introducing these other higher tech kind of options. Um, so it's kind of, you know, introducing you know, hopefully not as there are times that I've had to do it, but not everything all at once to someone um, and kind of getting them involved with seeing these different devices. So, and like you said, it's, it's a learning curve. It's a complete learning curve of any of it from, you know, using a pen and paper to communicate upwards of these tech, these higher tech devices. So, you know, having someone try something out. So a lot of times it's introducing these, you know, not as techie options, getting people comfortable with that. Um, And then as they're working with those things, then slowly kind of introducing these other devices and other options that are out there. So I will have people and their families come in just to kind of see the devices, not even a full evaluation of it, um, but just to see what options are there. Um, And every device kind of brings something different to the table So that's really where it's important of kind of getting to know the patient, their family, what the goals are of if they want to use their device primarily to use their phone and to text and call with their eye movements or by touching it, Um, or if they want to use it for their Alexa at home or, you know, environmental controls, or it's purely communication, whatever it may be, there's kind of a device and they have these other features incorporated into them. So as they're seeing these devices, as they're trying them out, as they're, you know, loaning them out for a couple of weeks to see if they like them, kind of targeting what is the best fit for them. Um, So then um, making sure that they can, someone can physically use it. So um, a lot of the devices are typically either by touching. So all of them are touchscreen. Um, but if someone is having trouble with 
that with raising their hand to touch the screen with physically pointing to something. Um, then there's the option of using, we call it iGeese software. So on these devices, there are cameras that can track eye movements. So you can use them the same way that you would with a, a computer, a tablet with communication software with your eyes. And I'm, I'm interrupting you real sure. quick. Sure. Is this what Bill, Bill used? So I gave, I believe, so Bill has kind of a, a variety of options, which like you were saying, so he has what they're called are text to speech apps. So that is on your computer or on your phone, you would do a type out like you're texting, like you're emailing anything that you'd want to say. And then the device will physically speak it for you. Um, he also has a device where it is a full system that has that option to type out, but also with the eye gaze movements. So I believe he used kind of a combination of both of those, which again, a lot of our patients do use a combination. Um, it's never really a, a one and done. This is the only device that someone uses. So I believe he used kind of both mm-hmm. things throughout the process. So. So if our patients or your patients were interested in exploring these communication alternatives, is that something that would be um, that would be included or integrated in a, a, a uh, you know the, the, the typical um, clinic visit that that would be part of it or is it a separate visit, a separate time um, to the clinic? Um, or can it be all incorporated into that, you know, that that clinic visit that incorporates so many other uh, components of the of therapy? Sure. So it, it we can do both. It, it kind of varies. Um, if someone, you know, would have a difficult time getting here, if they live, you know, an hour, two hours away, um, I would definitely try to do all of it in that clinic visit to not have them have to come back. Um but sometimes, a lot of times, it is a little bit easier to have someone come in kind of one-on-one with me, just separately from clinic for an hour, two hours or so, just to kind of see the devices. And again, we'll, I would go over everything ranging from not-so-tech upwards of these eye gaze kinds of devices, too. Um, but yeah, so it depends definitely on, you know, preferred kind of that one-on-one, either coming into clinic or myself doing a home visit with a patient to do that. Um, or if coming in, you know, at clinic, then I can go over those options as well. So that the, the best way to do it, obviously, I guess would be, it would take an hour or two, I think you had said to kind of go over things. <laughs> so it really couldn't be incorporated into the clinic rotation. Yeah. Other than maybe if it's the last piece of the <laughs> visit sure. where you, you're not seeing any other uh, patients and, you know, uh, the physical therapist isn't waiting for the doctor or something like that. So that is also a possibility then. Definitely. Okay. One of the things, um, as you were saying that Lenny, I was thinking about how I've had the, the, the privilege of seeing you kind of do some of these evaluations once or twice. And, um, I learned so much. I learned so much just from watching you and, I, I, there's a way that you are able to make our patients, our families feel so comfortable. 
And why that I think that is so important is because this is scary territory mm-hmm. for some of our, for our folks where the thought of having to bring bring this idea of not being able to communicate to the table mm-hmm. is scary. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of one experience where we had one of our, our ladies come and you, it was scary to her and she got tearful and she got a little bit overwhelmed. And um, you're, what would you say to those folks who are, um, don't want, you know, they're, they're worried about this. They're scared about this. And you know, what, what is, because that is very valid. That's very, and any one of us would be Mm -hmm. feeling that way too. Yeah, definitely. And completely, um, it is, it's scary and unknown and it is something that is, um, potentially could could occur. Um, so I think it's that, that's kind of where that hard balance comes in of bringing it up early enough so that people don't become overwhelmed with it down the line if they would need something. Um, but also not wanting to add more fear into that of things that could occur. Um, so I think that's kind of the, the beauty of, you know, starting early, the discussions of, you know, Hey, these are some options that are out there just for your, your cell phone first. It's something that a lot of, you know, mostly everyone has a cell phone. So kind of starting there and getting used to the idea of, okay, it's just like I'm typing. It's just like I'm emailing or texting someone and kind of go in with that first. Um, if the hand function is good. Um, and then slowly kind of, you know, at a clinic, just showing them a device really quickly say, Hey, this is one option that's out there just so people can even see it. Um, because again, it's, it's such a strange concept to think about any of this, um, you know, with using another form of your body to communicate other than your, your voice, um, your, your physical voice. So, you know, kind of starting that of seeing it, touching it, touching the devices, seeing how they work, even like just me demonstrating using them just so that they can just watch and just kind of see how it goes and how it works first before jumping headfirst into this discussion and, Hey, here's a device, you know, I I never want to do that to anyone. So um, I think it's that, you know, starting kind of that gentle intro with the the apps for your phone or just that pen and paper and going there. Um, But yeah, it's a lot of, a lot of discussions of how strange it is and it's, it's unknown. And weird is what I always tell people. It's mm-hmm. a weird process and a weird thing to think about. Um, but also, you know, encouraging people that how important it is to still have your voice, whether that not be your traditional voice, but it's still your thoughts, your words, what you want to communicate, whatever mode that may be, whether that is through a computer or through a pen and paper, it's still you. So I think kind of, trying to drive that home with patients that, you know, it's, there's options out there and slowly and trailing. So, but it is, it's, it's weird. (laughs) What is, what is voice banking? I've heard voice banking. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the way I usually tell people about it too is so when someone uses one of these apps or these devices, the voice that comes out of it 
they've made improvements, but it is pretty, it's computerized sounding. Um, so what voice banking is, um, is a process in which patients can actually record their voice, how it is now. So if they're having a couple, like slowly starting to have some speech changes or having no speech changes at all, what you can do is record through different companies, um, a variety of different sentences, phrases, words that the company will send, um, you record it into their system. What they do essentially is parse all of those recordings that you've sent down to make a voice for you. So it is your voice. So it would be anything that you would want to like express on these devices would come out as your voice then. So it's, you know, any combination of letters, sounds, the company does that, um, which is really cool. Um, the other option too is it, that is a process to do. So it's, it's a decent amount, a couple hundred upwards, thousands of recordings that the companies usually require to have a quality voice. The other option is message banking. So that is the same concept, but it can be for patients who already are having some speech changes. So if they're noticing that, you know, there's a little slurredness to their, their voice or their speech is different, they can still record. Um, anything that is them, anything that they would want to record, save it in audio files. And then through a process, we would upload those onto the app they're using, the computer they're using. So it is their voice for those recordings. So it's the, I love you, the, how are you? The very personal things that are them in their voice could still be there. Other things might be the computerized voice then, but so kind of and options. that's essentially what Bill did, right? I mean, like mm-hmm. it, it, I think he was doing it more from an artistic sort mm-hmm. of passion for poetry and recording that, but that's mm-hmm. sort of right. Yeah, like exactly. Sort of what, he saved his voice in right, that. Yeah, right. absolutely. And to hear, mm-hmm. um, you know, Lenny commented on this during the interview mm-hmm. and the listeners couldn't see, but we were doing it Zoom so we mm-hmm. could see Bill and his face. Mm-hmm when we were playing the recording of his voice years before. Sure. I mean, it was just, you know, we all, I think we all had tears because it was mm-hmm. just so special to see him hear himself. Yeah. You know? Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you, Amanda. Sure. This well, is I, so- I, I do have one more question Yeah. before we go. Just, you know, I, I think it's a, and from the practical side, what, your experience for for those that are considering something like this or that need it, what level of resource, what level does insurance cover for this? Or is this a lot of out-of-pocket expense? Or does Medicare, with um, if this is considered a durable medical uh, device? Sure. That's a great question. Um, so for a full speech-generating device, that would have the ability for you to use either, you know, hands or eye movements with um, those devices are typically if Medicare will cover about 80, 80% of it um, for anyone who has a supplemental with Medicare, typically that covers that other 20%. So we've had pretty good success with having everything covered um, for anyone who might not have a secondary insurance or a supplemental or, 
you know, not Medicare, whatever it may be, there are foundations out there that cover, we apply to with the patient to cover that copay cost of the devices. Um, so I never, and that's the part of the process of going through this is doing checks with people's insurance, communicating with the companies of these different devices so that we know upfront what, if there is going to be an out-of-pocket cost, what that would be. So we then are able to get the funding to cover it. Um, and that's, you know, something I would never want anyone anywhere to, you know, get a device and then still have not, have not been aware of what a cost could be, but typically with Medicare and a supplemental, um, Medicaid, anything, usually it covers at least the majority. Of that it. would be for a, a speech generating machine. And would that include the voice banking and, and that type of stuff? So on some of the machines, you can actually voice and message bank on them. So that would come with that machine, which is great um, to go through the process of the full voice banking. Um, there are other foundations out there as well that will help cover the cost of that, the startup kind of cost of you to do that, um, which is great as well, because some of them can get a little pricey, um, but there are foundations will actually, you can apply to, to cover the, the cost to do that. Um, All right, great. Yeah. A lot of yeah. the apps are free to, you know, on your phone, not necessarily the whole, the whole big devices, right. but um, kind of the, the mid-level tech options. There's a lot of great free options out there too. Well, that, that's really good. No, and I didn't mean to inter, uh, interrupt you there, Jesse, but I just thought it was important no, for glad. folks to know the practical side of things. And yeah. Yeah. what I take away from your response, Amanda, is that um, by all means, Medicare, and I imagine most people, it's maybe unfair of me to generalize, but most people have some sort of gap insurance or supplemental insurance. And it sounds like a good bit, if not a hundred percent of it would be covered through Medicare and your supplemental insurance. Sure. And I, and I know that that, uh, you know, just from my own experience, you know, it's always that, uh, that balance of what do I spend money on? You know, what do I spend my, my estate on, if you will, my inheritance to my family on 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 things as a insurance because I may or may never need it mm -hmm. versus what do I keep so that I can pass it on you know to my daughter to 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 Marta um because that's also equally as important to me. Mm -hmm. So that's why I was asking about that. I just think it's a it's it's an important consideration. Yeah and Lenny the other thing actually I'm glad you brought that up too because that's why, um, and I'll just say, <laughs> Medicare does cover it. However, what you don't see behind the scenes is all the sort of stuff that Amanda and that, that the providers do to make sure that Medicare covers it, right? Like there's oh, this absolutely. whole sort yeah. of process system in place. So when mm -hmm. I say that to for listeners who might not be connected with a clinic or might not they might be seeing, you know, a speech therapist and an outpatient mm -hmm. facility, maybe not connected with a clinic. It's really important that you kind of get that connection so that you can make sure that Medicare does get that part covered. Um, but I was also thinking, Lenny, as you were saying, that is one of the things that Amanda has been so instrumental with 
specifically here in our clinic, but I know the ALS Association has been able to help with this clinics nationally mm-hmm. is developing a loaner closet of these speech devices so that somebody you don't need to go through the whole process of insurance Mm -hmm. and and get that financial sort of um commitment until you try it out and you see if you like it so you know i think that's something that's been huge for a lot of our families Mm -hmm. and that you've gone um you've really advocated for to make sure that people can try various things take them home check it out get used to it and then if you like it and then Mm -hmm. if it's something you want to move forward with you know then then we can pick up the ball from there and keep going. Exactly. Um, and that's really, really huge. Yeah. Really huge. Yeah. I would definitely encourage like ALS. Association. I mean, there's so many resources out there about these loaner closets. Yeah. That- ALS association, mm-hmm. Les Turner organization, mm-hmm. Gleason foundation. Mm-hmm. The three of them are just yep. a, a temple has temp- a program as well that, you know, you can try it out for, a month at a time, two months at a time. And, you know, with setup, you know, still working with a speech therapist to have that, that follow-up and setup of it and use of it um, before, cause it is, it's a big thing to purchase. And if you are spending money out of pocket on, you know, I encourage anyone to make sure that it's, it's what they want and it's what the it right will be one. functional for them. Yeah. Right. And that's where your experience comes into play. Cause I know, you know, whether you're, go, you know, anything that you, that, that, you know, that has any sort of functionality to it and you're being asked, what is it that you want? You know, you being the, uh, the demand, the, the, the patient. And a lot of times I don't know what I want because I don't know what I'm going to need. So I need, I need that advice. I need that experience to share, um, you know, Hey, you may want to think of it this way. Or that way. I mean, I've got some personal experiences working with the folks at the ALS Association where they gave me an alternative that I wasn't thinking of. And it's like, ah, that worked out a lot better than what I was thinking about. Um, so I, I do encourage folks that aren't involved with the clinic that that it really does. There, there's a lot of benefits in, in working with the clinic and certainly dealing with the insurance companies. Things need to be phrased appropriately. The right boxes need to be checked Otherwise, it's just going to be in sentences need to be in certain places. Yes, (laughs) yes. yes, It's just uh, so that's what's that's. Yeah, I don't underestimate the effort that goes into any of that. So I do appreciate all of your your hard work, Amanda. And uh, and and I I think this has been a uh, it's been a lot of help to me. And I'm sure there's a lot of good information here for um, many of our listeners as well. Yeah, yeah, we are so lucky. We are so lucky to have you. Oh, well, thank you. We might need to do a whole nother podcast about because I feel like there's just so much. There's so much out there and there's so much that um, you have to share with us. So thank you. And thank you for the voice that you're giving to our families, to our folks with ALS. This is awesome. Yep. It's an honor. So happy to be here. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. Of course. Take care. Yeah. You too. I'll be I'll be at clinic on Tuesday. Maybe I'll see you. Oh okay. yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll go over the. She'll bring in her devices. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I got to admit, I had an ulterior motive asking some of those questions. I was thinking <laughs> of trying to get ahead of things, so I may be following up with you. All right. Well, take care, everybody. Hi, Lenny. 
episode three um, in the books with Bill and Amanda. Um, I feel like I learned a lot. I learned so much and I'm just so feeling inspired by our experience getting to connect with Bill, hear his poetry, hear his art, learn from Amanda about all the resources out there. Um, it was really an incredible experience. How are you? How are you feeling about it? No, it really was. I know when um, we were thinking about, you know, topics and guests that we were both excited about having Bill as our guest, but we also felt a little bit of a challenge given his, um, you know, need to use a speech generating machine. And I think it went off great. I think that, um, as you said, I, I, I was really inspired by Bill. Um, for those I know that our listeners cannot see him as we were doing the Zoom link, but it, it just such a, a cheerful, happy gentleman with a, a, just a big smile, just really warmed our hearts. And it was great to be able to have that, that visual communication with him. And then his caregiver, June, as well as Marilyn, who wasn't able to join us, but how he communicated with June. And then, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, the climax was hearing his own voice, hearing him recite his poetry in his own voice, I think was also very, um, very heartwarming. And um, with respect to Amanda, it's also, it's, it's great hearing somebody that's very passionate about their work and within the ALS community and somebody that is doing as much as they can to help those within the community to retain as much of their independence as possible. So yes, I think, I think today's podcast all of them are special and today certainly is just as special. Mm -hmm. You couldn't have said it better. I'm right there with you. I, I think um, to be able to, to hear Bill's voice, to be able to communicate with him, even though ALS has changed the way he can communicate. I think that's the whole crux of what we're, we're trying to do with our show, right. Is to be able to give people voice hear you know, hear their stories, experiences and go along with them for that ride. Um, so yeah, such a, such a gift. And thank you to Bill and thank you to Amanda. Um, as a reminder, if you're interested in getting involved on our show, we'd love to, to chat. Um, you can email us at rootsradioals at gmail.com. Um, for those of you who can't see, like I can, uh, Lenny is rocking his Phillies hoodie right now. Um, and just a little preview for episode four that we're working on. Um, episode four will be an episode actually focused on Luke Gehrig, on baseball, on the Phillies, on their connection to baseball, um, or the connection to ALS, um, locally in the, in the greater Philadelphia ALS association chapter. And, um, yeah, we're excited about it. Bill mentioned in his poem about one of his poems about how it's been 80 years since Lou Gehrig had ALS and we, um, there has been some progress that's been made, but we don't have a cure. We don't have a fix. And so, um, we're sort of inspired to dive into that a little bit. We're excited for episode episode four and all you baseball fans out there. Yes. Buckle and that, 
It's going to be a fun one. <laughs> yeah, that that's great. And I can, I can attest that I am a uh, very um, rabid baseball fan uh, with the Phillies. And, um, it, it, and we've already done some preparation for that show. And uh, I can say that uh, with a lot of pride that the Phillies organization has been connected to the ALS Association for over the last 30 years, for almost 40 years. And um, uh, I'm very prideful of that relationship that they have where the, the timing may be off a little bit because Major League Baseball celebrated Lou Gehrig and their support for ALS on June 2nd of this year. But nonetheless, I think it's still going to be a, a really good podcast. And uh, both Jesse and I are really looking forward to pulling it together and sharing it with everybody. Absolutely. Here we go. Episode four. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening and we'll, um, we'll be get working on our next one. All right. Bye-bye. Have a great day, everyone. Bye.